Kia ora, I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, and you're listening to the session podcast Lab Girl from our 2018 programme. Heralded as the Jane Goodall of Botany in Science magazine, Hope Jaren is a recipient of three Fulbright scholarships, was named one of Time's 100 Most Influential People in 2016, and is the Wilson Professor at the University of Oslo's Centre for Earth Evolution and Dynamics. Her memoir, Lab Girl, a National Book Critics Circle Award winner, is a visceral, funny tale of work and love, her relationship with her scientist father Bill, their adventurous global field trips, the complexities of the natural world, and sexism in and beyond the laboratory. She speaks with Susie Wiles in a session supported by Te Punaha Matatini. We hope you enjoy it. I'm just trying to find the timer. <laughs> well, uh, kia ora and um, welcome everybody. Thank you for coming. I have some housekeeping things that I'm going to do first. Um, oh, remember to introduce yourself. Hello, I'm Susie Wiles. Uh, I'm a um, scientist at the University of Auckland and I have the great pleasure of uh, introducing our session, um, which is Lab Girl with um, Hope Jaren. Um, so I have to remind you to double check your phones are silenced. Um, because we don't want any of those ringing, thank you very much. Um, but we do encourage you to share your thoughts about the session, although please be nice, um, on social media. The, um, the hashtag is AWF18, um, and um, the Auckland Writers Festival's Twitter handle is at AKL Writers Fest. Um, I'd like to thank Tapunaha Matatini, um, which is one of the Centres of Research Excellence uh, in New Zealand, for their support for the session. Um, and so, yeah, we're, Hope and I are going to have a chat, and then there will be time for questions um, at the end. And that's questions, not stories. So um, I will give you time to do that at the end, and we will um, bring up the lights and show you where the mics are then. Okay, so let's get started. Um, so I'd like to introduce Hope. She's a Wilson Professor at the Centre for Earth Evolution and Dynamics at the University of Oslo in Norway. Um, she's been the recipient of not just one but three Fulbright Awards as well as numerous research medals. Um, and in 2016 she was named one of Time Magazine's most 100 most influential people, which I think is must be quite an intimidating thing to have been named but is also a little bit of an intimidating thing to be talking to somebody who's been named like that. Um, so Hope has built a career exploring how living and fossil organisms are chemically linked to their environment. And what that essentially means is she spends a lot of time measuring their um, stable isotopes of things like carbon, nitrogen, hydrogen, and oxygen. Um, I first became aware of Hope actually because she's a, not only a tweeting scientist, but she wrote a blog um, rather beautifully titled Hope Jaren Sure Can Write. And if you've read her book, she sure can write. Um, and what I loved about it is that she was a, a really a human being uh, in, this, uh, in this blog. She's funny, um, reveals how a great uh, communicator she is, and she's also very sweary, um, which I just I absolutely love. Um, <laughs> Being a bit potty-mouthed myself, I should try and be clean today. Um, and then in 2016, she published this book, Lab Girl, uh, which is, says, a story of trees, science, um, and love. So please join me in welcoming Hope. Thank you, so, thank you, thank you. Of all the things you could have done tonight, beautiful <laughs> weather, there's... <laughs> There's comedy thing in town. I mean, of all the things you could have done tonight, you chose to come here, and I'm so grateful to see you. <laughs> so thank you. She says she's grateful to see you. We can't see anything. It's like pitch black out there. <laughs> but we think there's people there. Um, anyway, so um, Lab Girl, if you haven't read it, is an amazing book. And it's part memoir, part kind of botany lesson. Um, and in fact, it says on the front, does for botany what Oliver Sacks' essays did for neurology, which I think is really true. Um, so I guess my first question is, why did you decide to write the book? Um, it was, a, a lot of the book was me trying to make sense of my life. I, uh, I, had, I had lived a lot of places and I had done a lot of things and I knew these strange people and, and I knew some things about plants, but none of it made sense to me in a, in, a, in a strange way. And I sat down, when I sat down and wrote it all out, 
it, all of a sudden it was a story with a beginning and a middle and an end. And all of a sudden my life was this story. I mean, was it a good story or a bad story or a, an honorable story or a shameful story or whatever. But it was, it was a coherent story. And so that was, that was a gift I gave myself. And that was, and then, it, then there was this question of, well, does anybody want to read this? And how <laughs> would you go about, you know, because the, the difference between a file on your computer and a book on your shelf is a lot of hard work by a lot of people that aren't you, right? So, so then it was a file on my computer and then started the journey of whether or not it was gonna be a book. But it was really something I wanted, I wanted to have that in my life. I wanted some day to be able to say my, to myself, I had, I had written down this story of, of these, the most, you know, kind of craziest years of my life. It, it, was, it was just sort of a gift that I gave myself. I, that's, or, I mean, or, you know, it was a midlife crisis. Or, I mean, it wasn't a very <laughs> destructive midlife crisis. But that's, that's <laughs> honestly, that's the, that's the story. And it was a type of writing that I wasn't doing in other facets of my life. You know, scientists write all the time. You know, we write reports and, and papers and email to each other and, and proposals, and we're constantly writing, but the form associated with that craft is, is very different than mm -hmm. um, if you're gonna tell the story of holding a new baby, you know, or something like that. It's a different, it's a different construct, it's a different form, etc. And so I wanted to, it was just something I didn't, I began to be, I always wanted to do that, and I got to the age where I began to be very, very afraid that I would go my whole life and never give myself the gift of doing it. So it was a very selfish thing to do, to be honest with you. Um, so having read the book, I don't think it's a selfish thing because you've given us all a gift. So I would like to invite you to read a small bit for us so that everyone, those who haven't read it, can see <laughs> so, if, so if you haven't read it and you're thinking, you know, do I want to read this or whatever, <laughs> I, I, I'd like to read you a little bit of it in the hopes that you'll say, oh, that's something I might like to read more. A seed knows how to wait. Most seeds wait for at least a year before starting to grow. A cherry seed can wait for a hundred years with no problem. What exactly each seed is waiting for is known only to that seed. Some unique trigger combination of temperature, moisture, light, and many other things is required to convince a seed to jump off the deep end and take its chance, to take its one and only chance to grow. A seed is alive while it waits. Every acorn on the ground is just as alive as the 300-year-old oak tree that towers over it. Neither the seed nor the old oak is growing. They are both just waiting. Their waiting differs, however, in that the seed is waiting to flourish while the tree is only waiting to die. When you go into the forest, you probably tend to look up at the plants that have grown so much taller than you ever could. You probably don't look down, where just beneath your single footprint sits hundreds of seeds, each one alive and waiting. They hope against hope for an opportunity that will probably never come. More than half of these seeds will die before they feel the trigger that they are waiting for, and during awful years, every single one of them will die. All this death hardly matters, because the single birch tree towering over you produces at least a quarter of a million new seeds every single year. When you are in the forest, for every tree that you see, there are at least a hundred more trees waiting in the soil, alive and fervently wishing to be. Each beginning is the end of awaiting. We are each given exactly one chance to be. Each of us is both impossible and inevitable. Every replete tree was first a seed that waited. 
So I guess there are two things that really struck me about your book. Um, well, actually, there's lots of things. But, uh, one is the way that you write, which, as you say, is very different from the way that um, most of the writing that scientists do, which is passive voice and no humanity in it at all. Um, but the, the other thing was just the spiritual nature of your relationship with plants. I mean, it really is kind of amazing. The choice of words, the tone of the writing is just beautiful. So um, what is it that makes plants so special to you? Why should we care? Um, I like plants because they're so different than we are. I remember, I remember choosing to study plants in graduate school because I thought, this was the hardest question I could come up with. I knew that this was a question, what is it like to be a plant? What are plants trying to do? I knew that was a question that would keep me busy for the rest of my life. I didn't want, I, I wanted, you know, I wanted to have something that would feel like a calling, you know, that would feel like a big mystery that I could, I could, that, that would last, you know. Um, and, I just like them because they're so, so different than we are. I mean, they do, I mean, all living things, like a, a microbe and a worm and a, and a mouse and you and me and a plant and a fungus, you know, they all do the same five things. They grow, they maintain that growth, they store against hard times, they heal from injury, and eventually somebody's got to reproduce, right? But you can look at each one of those activities. You can say, okay, well, that's, those are the activities of life. That's what you do if you're alive on planet Earth. But you can look at plants and go through each of those five things, and you see them accomplishing those activities, you know, successfully accomplishing those activities, but using completely different strategy and a set of tool that, that we do. You know, you talk about the plant making 400,000 seeds every year. A, a fern, you know, how many spores does a fern put out, right? Uh, and 1% and of them are going to germinate, and 1% of those are going to live for a year, and 1% of those are going to live for 10 years, and, and on and on, and the odds against being a tree. Well, I mean, does anybody here have kids, right? <laughs> I mean, we do things a little differently. So, so it's one example of, um, I mean, the other thing that's great about plants is they, they don't, they stay. That's something I think about a lot. I mean, so much as animals, what we do is we move towards what we want. And we move away from the things that we don't want. And plants don't ha can't do either of those things, right? Mm -hmm. So that's off the table. So, so when you can't, you can't use those go-to strategies for making your way in the world, how do you, how do you, how do you m maneuver the world if you have to stay? If, if you have to wait for things to get better, or if you have to endure or tolerate, or, or, and you know, as somebody who's, in, you know, you think about these things and it very, you think about them for a long time in a room by yourself, and you start to think about your own life too, right? Especially when you've moved around a lot, you know, what does it mean to stay? What are the things that you get out of life when you, when you stay? Um, and it all, you know, it all, it all. It all blends together, and so I tried to capture some of, some of that in the form of the book. People ask a lot about the structure. It talks about plants. It talks about my life. It tells these stories about monkeys and things like that. And, um, and I say that's, that's the only structure that made sense because that's what my life is, right? Mm -hmm. I'm at the lab, and I'm doing this stuff, and I'm thinking about where, where is my kid, and when am I going to meet with him, and I'm at home dealing with him, or I'm cooking something or cleaning something, and I'm thinking, oh, I have to go back in and, and do the rest of that experiment, or oh, yeah, I have this other thing that we've got to do. So we live, we live, I, I thought the book itself should reflect the mechanics of sort of how scientists live their lives, or, or one example, actually, <laughs> is what it is. I was almost envious, actually. A few of the times you talk about um, how you, uh, you know, you've, you've got this question and you've, um, you've done these experiments, and several times it's like, done experiments that would be utterly unethical in people. Yeah, you can yeah. do this because there's no IRB yeah, board, yeah, yeah. there's no ethics permission. You can just go ahead and we're going to do this thing. And, almost, yeah, I, and I almost felt a little bit 
upset for some of the, um, some of the right C6. It's time for C6 yeah, to die. Yeah, C6 yeah. was an interesting yeah. plant that was growing in a particular way, and oh, it's yeah. like yeah. one of many I imagine many, many uncountable <laughs> plants we've killed. No, people are always disappointed by two things when they meet me. One that I'm not taller. Apparently, I write <laughs> I write like a tall person. <laughs> And two, that I don't love plants more unconditionally than I do. <laughs> like, we, we grow plants. I mean, in the lab, we grow a lot. We plant mm. a lot of plants. We grow a lot of plants, and then we kill a lot of plants. And one thing that I talk about is that it actually feels pretty good at the end of some of these experiments. I mean, these experiments where you're growing these plants, and you, they have to stay alive for four weeks so that you can compare them with the last experiment, which was a four-week experiment. Was a four so by the end of it, you're like in a sleeping bag next to these growth chambers, you know, monitoring these things. And you just have to get to that four-week mark, and then you can harvest them all. And I tell you, it feels pretty good when you're ripping those things apart like, on the last day. <laughs> <laughs> They're going to not have my life back. No, I always just feel like, listen, you know, you controlled my life for four weeks, and now I control yours, and how does it feel? <laughs> but that's, it, you know, it comes with the terror. I mean, I, hopefully I would feel different if we were chopping down trees or something like that. But um, I do tell students to think about studying plants because it is so incredibly much less paperwork than studying mm. animals. And, like, yeah. if you want to withhold water from a mouse for 24 hours, you have to get IRB you do. approval. Like, and it yeah, it's will just, really well need well justified. <laughs> you should see some of the things. And, and some mm. of the questions we're interested in is, you know, what, what, what is the point of too little? You know, when is too little fertilizer, too little water, too little? You know, how much can they endure and stuff like that? And, of course, um, you can do anything you want to a plant to 10 or 100 or, you know, and nobody's ever going to knock on your door and make I'll you say I'm, I'm envious. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so it is, uh, so, no, I mean, honestly, we do have this, this freedom, you know, when we construct our experiments um, that we can, you know, we can just do stuff to test this life mm -hmm. form. Um, it's so different than us. We have we also have this darkness that we're kind of kicking against. So so maybe that offsets some of the some of the otherness of, of what we're trying to figure out. Mm -hmm. um, so the as I said earlier, your book is part memoir. You sort of mentioned this. Um, so I think I'd like you to do another reading to sort of uh, give us a little bit of a flavour of some of the, the the way that you've written about your life, please. Yeah. So the book is called Lab Girl. I get asked about the book title a lot. The book is called Lab Girl because I was a little girl in the lab. My very first memories were of being uh, in my father's lab. He was a community college teacher for uh, 42 consecutive years in a rural area of Minnesota. And just like the kids in the small town who had, their parents had the ice cream shop, we would go, and they learned how to scoop ice cream, right? So we went with my father at night to set up for the next day um, and to repair the equipment and get everything in line and run through the experiments so that when he came in and taught physics or, or chemistry or, or science or whatever, everything would be kind of in, in place for the next day. And my very first memories were, were of doing this with him. Um, so let me tell you about it. I grew up in my father's laboratory and I played beneath the chemical benches until I was tall enough to play on them. My father taught 42 consecutive years worth of introductory physics and earth science in that laboratory, nestled within a community college deep in rural Minnesota. He loved his lab and it was a place that my brothers and I loved also. The walls were made of cinder blocks slathered in thick cream-colored semi-gloss paint, but you could feel the texture of the cement underneath if you closed your eyes and concentrated. I remember deciding that the black rubber wainscoting must have been attached with adhesive because I couldn't find any nail holes anywhere when I measured the whole length with the yellow surveying tape that extended a full 30 meters. There were long workbenches where five college boys were to sit side by side, all facing the same direction. These black countertops felt cool as a tombstone and were made of something just as timeless 
something that acid couldn't burn and a hammer couldn't smash, but don't try. The benches were strong enough for you to stand on the edge of and couldn't be scratched even with a rock, but don't try. <laughs> Evenly spaced across the benches were braces of impossibly shiny silver nozzles with handles that took all your strength to turn 90 degrees. And when you did, the one that said gas did nothing because it wasn't hooked up, but the one that said air blew with such an exhilarating rush that you kind of wanted to put your mouth on it, but don't try. <laughs> The whole place was clean and open and empty, but each drawer contained a fascinating array of magnets, wire, glass, and metal that were all useful for something. You just had to figure out what it was. These were not kids' toys. These were serious things for grown-ups. But you were a special kid because your dad had that huge ring of keys so you could play with the equipment anytime you went there with him because he never ever said no when you asked him to take it all out. I, so I used to take my daughter into the lab when she was younger, but um, so I work with infectious diseases and recently the rules have changed. <laughs> and it's now we're not allowed any under 15s <laughs> in the lab. But um, I wonder whether she'd feel the same. Um, and I guess perhaps your your uh, path might have been different had your dad done something different, do you think? Um, I, I do remember, you know, I remember before I even knew what having a job was, looking around and saying, oh, I'm going to have a lab when I grow up, and when I do, it's going to be big, and I'm going to have one of these and two of those, and I'm going to do experiments with my best friend. And I remember wanting to have a lab before I even knew that that's what people did. And I, I started, as I got a lot more advanced in my career, people started asking me, how did you get in, interested in science? What did you get into science? And I couldn't, I couldn't remember a time when I ever wasn't completely certain that I would have, a, I thought that's just what people did, I think, when I was, when I was little like that. And it also, uh, it also became really important when I was when later in life and I started to get messages that uh, it was strange for me to be there or that I was the odd person out or I was the only girl in the room or whatever. It never occurred to me to ask whether I didn't belong there because mm. it was like, uh, obviously, this is where I, I've been here all my life. This mm. is, this is, this is, um, um, this is what, what I always wanted. Um, we'll touch on the gender thing in, in a minute because we are going to go there. But um, the... This was a rather tame bit of the of the memoir. This uh, tame's not the right. It's not it's not racy or anything. Um, no, it's um, but it's very intimate and very honest. And so, what's it like to know that people know these things about you that have read the book? Do you just not think about it? Um, I get I get a lot of reader mail, and I get I get the most incredible reader mail. Um, I get reader mail from people. People, people know that life is not easy, mm. and especially folks that are older. You know, they've been through life. A lot of older folks have time to read. They've seen a lot of life, and they know that um, that you don't. <laughs> that if you looked at your twenties, you know, you wouldn't. You wouldn't. <laughs> it, you wouldn't make the same choices you know, that you make in your, in your 20s, right? I mean, I, I'm, I'm always amazed with people's ability to understand. I mean, I think, I think if somebody's going to read your story, if a reader is going to stop their life and give you their attention, that's a gift. And the very least you can do to repay that gift is to offer honesty and authenticity and a real story that's as well crafted as you can possibly make it. Um, and I didn't want to, I knew people would judge me after I wrote about my life, but I wanted to be able to say, and I knew the only comfort I would have is saying that I wrote it so carefully and so honestly that if I had the chance to go back and change it, I wouldn't be able to. It, it, it's what it needs to be, and, and that's, and then you let go. You kind of have to let go. But what's come back to me in terms of what readers have told me um, is 
it's amazing, you know, people, um, you know, for somebody that spent so many years in a, alone, you know, or, or just with a small group of people, you know, living what they thought was this very odd life, um, it, uh, it, there's, there's plenty of people out there that, that saw something there um, themselves, and that's, that's the beauty of books, right? They, they, they teach us that we're not alone, even when we feel like we are. I guess, so speaking of spending your life with a small group of people, for those who've read the book, I'm sure, like me, they're asked, wondering how Bill is, because yes. we, we get to know Bill very well in this book. <laughs> um, tell, tell everybody who doesn't know who, who Bill is and, and what he means to you. Yeah, well, you, it's, you kind of have to read the book, but he, he's somebody <laughs> that I've worked with. He's my best friend that I've played in the lab with for, for getting to be 30 years now. And he's not my husband, and he's not my brother, and he's not, you know, I mean, but he's, he's Bill, right? Um, I always ask people, people ask me, like, where is Bill now, or what's he doing, or how is he, or whatever, and I always say, if you had to guess, <laughs> if you had to guess what he's doing right now and where he is, what would you guess? Lying under the isotope machine. <laughs> yes. So in 2016, we moved to uh, Oslo, Norway, and we um, have recently just finished installing and uh, calibrating the new instruments there for the lab. So we built a bigger and better facility than ever, and we're very, very happy um, carrying on there across on the other, almost exactly on the other side <laughs> of the world. <laughs> so um, a lot of the book is also um, uh, kind of around the struggles of, of kind of making it in science and the responsibility you, you felt for, you know, Bill being this incredibly important person who was helping you with the science, but not the one who was on kind of tenure track, so the one who was going to be the academic. Can you talk a little bit about that? And I guess also how, you know, because a lot of the book is just, right, we're up and we're moving to the next place and we're taking as much stuff as we can with us to rebuild our lives somewhere else. And I guess how that feels now in, in Norway. Yeah, um, we, we loved it. You know, people say, well, you worked really hard and you sacrificed and all this kind of stuff. And there was a point where, and people were saying that a lot, and I really didn't understand it. I didn't understand how anybody could read that book and think we had not just had the most fantastic time. And, and just how much joy we had had. You know, I grew up in a factory town surrounded by people that had to go to work had to kill animals for a living, and they didn't like it, you know? And I just felt like I was so, I wanted to be an intellectual so badly. I wanted to think for a living, and I just knew that we were so lucky to be doing what we love, to be asking questions and thinking and wondering and getting, and, and just being allowed to do it. And, um, People read it and they were like, oh, this, you know, this horrible, <laughs> this horrible, twisted, you know, workaholic, whatever. And I remember sitting down with Bill and being like, did, did I ruin your life? Like, did, 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 was it really that bad somehow? And, he, and he, I remember he looked at me and he said, no, those were the happiest years of our lives. <laughs> and and the, it's really true. I mean, I, the only bad part was we were so afraid it would end. We're so afraid that the money would run out and it would all end and we'd have to, we'd have to do something else. And I don't regret anything we did to keep going. Um, I would do it all over again and I would be grateful for the chance to do it. I mean, I think that's something scientists don't talk about enough is the joy that they get from thinking and asking questions and and using your brain <laughs> as the main muscle of your job, you know, just how good that feels and, and what a wonderful way that is to live and, and, the, and the gratitude that comes from, from being, from having that joy every day, that the, the gratitude that naturally, spontaneously comes as a, as a product of that. Um, that, for me, that just dwarfs out anything, any of the garbage that we went through um, in any of the other contexts. I always knew that I could go back down to the basement and we could, we could do whatever we wanted and that was worth everything. 
I guess, um, so the workaholic bit is that a lot, of, uh, a lot of the book takes place at night. You are often in the lab at night, I guess. Um, do you need much sleep? Was it, <laughs> what, what did, you, did you sleep during the day? Um, um, I, to me, we were always just doing what we wanted to do. Um, I mean, people have never, there's, there's other stuff I didn't do, right? I mean, people have never had a lot of luck getting me to do the things that they want me to do that I don't want to do, right? Like paperwork? Yeah. There's, there's certainly bits of the yeah. book where yeah. you don't yeah. appear to have the right permits or any permits at all. Yeah, and, um, and, and I think that's important. I mean, I, I think, <laughs> y y like, you know, faculty, professors get asked to do these things. You know, like, I, I was, they wanted me to be on a committee to evaluate, like, if the library needed new carpet. Seriously. <laughs> and I was just like, no, you know, I mean, I'm not going to do that, right? No, it's, it's not that I'm too good to do that. It's that we're all too good to do that. Like, nobody should have, like, the, ask the librarian. If she says, yes, we need new carpet, buy her some freaking carpet, right? <laughs> this is not, right? So, but, and I was also like, I, I was also like, you know, people, people who had jobs that they didn't like, gave their taxes to fund the university for me to like learn how to do science and that was probably my job to do that science and not you know mess around with carpets and stuff like and the, and the people the professors that had spent their lives trying to teach my dumbass you know calculus and all that stuff I mean didn't I owe it to them to practice my craft and that's been always been very important to me is that I'm able to say no I'm not going to do that because because of all the resources that were put into giving me these skills, I'm going to use them. Um, I am going to take that on board. <laughs> it and just the makes next time I get asked to sit you know, on a committee. It makes sense, right? <laughs> so it's, it's, you know, you get asked to do these things, and you got to wonder what the university would be if everybody just used their training mm. and practiced their craft. Right? <laughs> I think that deserves a round of applause. <laughs> Indeed. Um, so I want to move on a little bit. Um, you sort of touched on this a bit, but when I um, I read the book when it first came out, and then in preparation for uh, for actually being the one in this chair, I I bought a, a newer version of the book and read it again. And um, so it has lots of things on the front. Um, you have told me already that you don't read the reviews. That's, I didn't read any of the yeah, reviews. I read it's always people, wise not to read the comments. People, basically. yeah, but, I know. Um, but a thing that did strike me um, is that quite a few of them are um, about, about what a role model you are. Um, so this one from an unnamed person in science, if the next generation of scientists have role models like you, then the world of science will be better off indeed. And, um, I just wonder how you feel about that, and do you, um, yeah, how do you feel about being a role model? I think there are some things that we don't tell students enough that come through very clearly there. One is that people should think very hard about what feels good, what they're good at, and what feels good while they're doing it. Um, we tell students a lot, you know, think of what your weaknesses are, do you need to learn more statistics, or everybody should know how to program in R, or, you know, whatever the, whatever the skill du jour is. But, but we, you know, what is the part that feels good? What is the part that, that doesn't feel like work? Mm -hmm. and, and there's probably something there. You know, if you chase that, if you really commit to that, building that, and, and exploring that um, to, the, to, the, to the exclusion of all else. You know, you've got the rest of your life to watch Netflix or whatever it is, right? Um, to chase that. You know, people go overboard for love and for money and for fashion and everything, but you can also go overboard for your education. That's perfectly fine. And I think finding that peace and, and openly loving and striving and committing to that peace is a way to get to where you're supposed to be. I, I do believe that that's, that that's a message for students, and I also believe it's, it's a responsible message to show them that that's not pretty, that that's, mm -hmm. that's, that's not always 
always pretty and it doesn't happen fast. Mm-hmm. Um, and that the biggest rewards come from yourself, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people always rattle off you know, these medals and these awards that I've won or whatever, but you'll notice that in the pages of the book, those don't appear, yeah. you know, because that, those don't, you know, trust me, they don't come at the right time and they don't <laughs> always go to the right people, you know, and that's a bunch of other stuff. But if you know how mm-hmm. to reward yourself, mm-hmm. it sounds corny, but if you know how to chase the rewards that you give yourself, you'll always be doing the right thing for the right reason. That's, that's what I believe. And that's what I tried to, sh- to show, an honest picture of, of what happens what happens if you do that and it's not it's not a perfect pretty <laughs> picture but um it's it's real mm. the another thing that struck me reading the book again which i'm sure would have struck me at the time but you know with the me too and times up things have definitely changed and there's so many so casual references to navigating this world as a woman, and in this particular instance, navigating the world of science as a woman. So um, things that made me really sad, um, like the decision of when are you going to do a particular experiment because you need to use a particular piece of equipment, and so are you going to do it at night because there's a creepy postdoc in that lab, and if you do it at night, then you have less chance of running into him. And so, and so your big first discovery is made and you've got to wait several hours before you can tell anybody about it because everyone else is asleep because you're there in the middle of the night. And so, where do I want to go with this? I mean, just that, uh, seeing them all, just bam, 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 bam. Um, you know, the, the times are definitely changing. Um, you know, here in New Zealand this year, it's our 125th anniversary of women getting the vote. I mean, it feels like things are changing, but science hasn't had its Harvey, you know, Weinstein movement yet, right? It still feels like um, the things that you experience, the things that every woman in science has experienced, nothing's really, like we haven't had a really big reckoning yet. Yeah, I mean, I, the thing that always interests me is how people want to separate science. How, why, why, you know, what always confused me was why people expected science to be any different than any of these other endeavors, right? Because, and I go back to, you know, when the world gets complicated, you go back to the theory, the essential theory. And you say, you know, what are the truisms? Uh, the theoretical truisms and how do they apply here? And if you look at feminist theory, You say that most women's issues, if not all women's issues, boil down to one of three things or some combination of three things. Sexual violence, reproductive rights, and equal pay for equal work. And we see all three of those issues expressed within science. And so when you see these issues raised, it's always some combination or some aspect of those things, right? We have sexual violence, Um, in our labs and in our field sites, and we have um, big issues around um, equality in in terms of pay reward and advancement, and we have um, problems around negotiating motherhood in the context of a scientific career, right? Those are the things we talk about, but those are the three fundamental struggles Mm -hmm. of going through the world in a woman's body. Those are the things that link us to the fundamental struggle of of, of women's liberation, as we used to call it <laughs> back in the 70s, right? And so what I think is, you know, science is joining the world as we raise consciousness in terms of, you know, what does, what does a world, what does a just world look like? You know, we're, we're imagining this century, you know, the turn of the century was, what, 10 years ago? 18 Mm. years ago? You can calculate it, I guess. It was 18 (laughs) years ago. I mean, we're at the beginning of a new century. We're still imagining what we want it to be. But we also, in science, um, like we saw this just last week with, um, so James Watson, everyone will know as Watson and Crick from the DNA. He had his 90th birthday and was given a big day of seminars and um, toasted for his amazing contributions. And yet he is like bigoted, racist prick. Yeah. 
right? And, and yet we have this thing where we can't, uh, I'm just going to say Einstein, we have this thing where we can't seem to separate, well, I say we, humankind scientists, can't seem to separate the genius from the act and somehow the genius allows the actions to be just, oh well, you know, and it irritates me because it's, sorry, you can see this irritates me, because it's like that person is taking up the space that could be taken by somebody equally as genius, but who's also a decent human being. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I mean, did you have physics in high school? I mean, Newton, Newton came up with F equals MA, right? I mean, Newton, Newton was a, a rabid misogynist. I mean, of, of, all, of all his accomplishments, he's the father of of physics, right? Of all his accomplishments, he said that dying a virgin was his, was his, the main thing he was proud of because he was so, he was heterosexual, but he hated women's bodies. He was obsessed, mm -hmm. right? And so, yeah, I mean, you, you look at his work and, I mean, what would Newton think of me, right? Not much, right? Um, but, you know, I, I have other friends. <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, I think what to say about it. I mean, I, when people get together and have these dinners, I mean, do you really expect something sensible to happen? True. I no, just, I mean, this was, this was like a dinner and they were having champagne and stuff. I'm just glad I wasn't there. <laughs> you know? I mean, I mean, I don't mean to make light of it or whatever, but it's like... If somebody, if somebody comes up on the stage and tells you they have the answer for that, you know, you shouldn't, you shouldn't trust them. But um, uh, I, I'm glad, I'm grateful to be living in a time when we are openly discussing this stuff, you know, because our mothers and our grandmothers, they lived in shame and isolation. You know, my grandmother, the idea of thinking for a living was beyond, you know, what she could do, and so when I when I get, and there are problems. There are there are there are problems. There are very deep culturally learned power imbalances between men and women. But I'm glad to be part of many generations of women that endure and go forward. And I wouldn't I wouldn't trade that, even if it's hard sometimes. I wouldn't trade how lucky I feel to be part of it. Okay, um, that was all a bit serious. How about we have another reading? Yes. <laughs> okay. Cactus. <laughs> a cactus doesn't live in the desert because it likes the desert. It lives in the desert because the desert hasn't killed it yet. Any plant that you find growing in the desert will grow a lot better if you take it out of the desert. <laughs> the desert is like a lot of lousy neighborhoods in that nobody living there can afford to move. <laughs> too little water, too much light, temperature too high, the desert has all of these inconveniences ratcheted up to their extremes. Biologists don't much study the desert, since plants represent three things to human society, food, medicine, and wood. You'll never get any of those things from the desert. Thus, a desert botanist is a rare scientist and eventually becomes inured to the misery of her subjects. In the desert, life-threatening stresses aren't a crisis, they are a normal feature of the life cycle. Extreme stress is part of the very landscape. It is not something a plant can avoid or ameliorate. Survival depends on the cactus's ability to tolerate deathly, grim, dry spells over and over again. If you meet a barrel cactus that's as tall as your knee, it is likely to be more than 25 years old. Cactuses grow slowly in the desert, during the years when they do grow, that is. A barrel cactus has folds like an accordion, and deep within those folds are the pores that let air in and water evaporate out. 
When it becomes very dry, a cactus sheds its roots to prevent the parched soil from sucking all the water back out of it. A cactus can live for four days with no roots and still continue to grow. If there's still no rain, the cactus begins to contract, sometimes for months, until the folds have closed together. Its spines form a dense and dangerous fur, protecting what is now a hard, rootless ball of plant. In this posture, the cactus can sit without growing and await rain for years, while continuously punished by the sun. When it finally rains, the cactus will either return to full functioning within 24 hours, or it will realize that it is dead. <laughs> I... I have an admission to make. Yeah. I love flowers and plants and things, um, and well, like, you know, having them in my house. Um, and really like the idea of having something in my office. And I've tried having office plants yeah. for a while, but none of them have really survived. Yeah. So at Christmas time, I was bought a beautiful, uh, what, what's the plural, of cactuses, cacti? Uh, a beautiful um, glass bowl with this four, I think, of these beautiful different cactuses. Um, and I put it in my office and then, um, and, he, and the guy said, just sort of missed it with some water, and I did that. And, and yeah. they just got sicker they died. and sicker. No, well, I took them home. Mm. And, uh, and then my husband was like, what the hell have you been doing to these poor things? And honestly, they have just, well, one of them decided it was dead. But the rest have thrived, and it's, it's sort of sad that I can't possibly, my, my office is the desert. <laughs> I can't be trusted to look after them. Anyway, so I, I apologise for doing that. Um, right, in order to have time for questions, um, I think we should move on to the, uh, the sort of last thing I think that we'll talk about, which is that you have written another book. I have, yes. So tell us about this book and what was the crisis that, um, the, the next midlife crisis that, that prompted this one. Yeah. <laughs> so um, when the Time magazine thing came out, I thought, oh boy, and I had like a few minutes of like, oh, do I deserve this? And, da, da, da. and then I thought, well, that's not really the question. The question is, what am I going to do with this? You know, if I'm this influential person, if somebody will actually listen to me, I have a chance to say something. So what do I want to say? So if I get one shot to say something important as an influential person, what, what is that going to be, right? So I sat down for a couple years. And I wrote a book, and um, it's about um, it's about the last 50 years. It's about global change, um, and it's about what has happened on Earth over the last 50 years. So I'm going to turn 50 soon. So it's basically my <laughs> life. What was the world like when I was a kid, and what is it like today? And I just mined through, you know, all the data sets on the census and plastics production and meat production and fertilizer use and pesticide use and fossil fuel consumption and car manufacture and railroad dismantling and, and, and also, you know, CO2 and ice rise and all this kind of stuff. And I put together what I think it has meant to be alive on the planet for this past 50 years, global change. And it's not what we should, it doesn't say what you should think about that. It should, there's, there's, you know, because this is a problem. Scientists, like, they preach, and nobody wants to be preached at. People <laughs> don't like that, you know? And they don't need it, you know? I mean, people are smart. They may not have lived the same life you did, but they, you know, you're, when you're writing, you're talking to perfectly smart people. <laughs> I mean, it's the assumption I've always made. Um, and so I just, as clearly and as, as interestingly as I could, I wrote down what I think it means to have been alive for the last 50 years, global change in those terms. And it's a story. Uh, and it's a story that um, anybody can read. Like, so with Lab Girl, one of the challenges I gave to myself is I said, I'm going to write this 
that without one word that anybody has to look up, <laughs> I'm gonna say what I've studied. I've studied plants for 20 years, I've 20, 30 years, whatever. I've spent a lot of tax dollars doing it. And what, what part of it was worth doing? I mean, the fact that, you know, 30 years goes into 200 pages is something you shouldn't dwell on too much, but, 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 you know, how can I tell the story of the important thing I learned about plants without resorting to the, the language, that coded language that I only share with a few people? What if I just use the language that we all share, the words that we all share? Can I tell that story? And I set the same standard for, for this book. It's the story of the last 50 years, using words that everybody shares, written through the lens of, of our lives. Um, we saw it happening. It, we, the numbers show something very clear, and we saw it happening in our lives. We might just not have noticed. So I could go on and on about that. I'm very excited about it, but that's my next thing. So is it, is it interspersed with personal stuff like Lab Girlies, or is it very much about, and, and, and is it a world perspective or is it a US perspective? Um, it, has, it has all these things, yeah. It talks about certain countries, um, yes, and yes, and yes, and yes. Um, it's still, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, it's still, I don't know when it's gonna be in the stores or whatever, there's still a little more journey to go, but, it, but it's, it's complete and, and uh, when it's good enough, you know, when it's, it's not good enough for the readers yet, it has to be perfect <laughs> before it's something worth your time. But when it is, I'm very hopeful that somebody will find something good there. Um, I think we should um, almost open up for questions. I, I want to end with one thing, which is just one of the passages in your book that really struck me. I'm going to see if I can find it now. Because um, I think it's a sort of lesson for all of us to live by. And it relates to when you worked in the hospital pharmacy. Um, working in a hospital teaches you that there are only two kinds of people, the sick and the not sick. If you're not sick, shut up and help. And I love that. I'm going to write that on my door. <laughs> Time has said zero. Zero. Yeah, we're done. Um, so I would like to, uh, so Hope is going to be outside signing books. Um, if you haven't got a copy, I highly recommend that you get yourself a copy. Uh, and come and meet her. Um, and so it just sort of uh, leads me to thank um, Tupunaha Martini for bringing, uh, help bring Hope here for the festival and Hope for her um, hour with us. Thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast from the 2018 Auckland Writers' Festival. You can find a range of other festival talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes and SoundCloud and on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.